Father, we uh, thank you for the opportunity to study your word, Lord, and I pray you give us insight and understanding, Lord, and you bless our time in your word tonight. Amen. Okay, so Mark chapter 1, we've, um, we've done the uh, prologue, our introduction to the gospel. Um, there were a few things in the prologue that could be relevant for us as we move on, so just to, to recap a little bit. Um, the prologue began with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and we're going to talk more about the gospel tonight. But uh, the phrase, the Son of God, is talking about the, the might and the power of Christ. It's a term that is typically used regarding his second coming. And Mark, as we've seen, is a gospel writer who is going to embrace that term, look at the might and the power of Jesus, and deal with all of the um, paradoxes that come from that as we go through the gospel. In fact, Mark's gospel, more than any other gospel, is a gospel that focuses on the brutality and the violence of the cross. It's Mark's gospel that is so typically used uh, in passion accounts uh, to talk about the suffering of Christ. And for Mark, that is, the, that is the, the paradox that is central to his gospel, that the mighty one would be crushed. And it is no surprise then that Mark is looking very much to Isaiah as part of his background. Like so many of the Gospel writers, Isaiah is, is very central. And he quotes from uh, Malachi, and Malachi indeed quoting from Exodus, and he then makes reference to Isaiah. And the point of the, those quotations that's going to become relevant to us again tonight, the point of those quotations is, is that there is a messenger, an angel, that went before the Israelites as they were led out of Egypt through the Exodus into the, uh, into the Promised Land, ultimately, and, that, and through the wilderness. And that there is also a messenger uh, or an angel who will prepare the way before the second coming. That's what Malachi is talking about. And here, in verse 3, there is Isaiah's quotation, which is John the Baptist, who is the messenger who's preparing the way for Jesus, crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Yahweh of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, before we progress tonight, just to recap on this, and this is important, when we've looked at this so far in the prologue, we, we talk, and we spent time on it when we did it, I won't redo it completely, but he quotes from Malachi. Malachi is referencing back to Exodus, and then he quotes from Isaiah. And he focuses on Isaiah, he says this is what's spoken of by Isaiah the prophet, even though he quotes Malachi first, because Isaiah is speaking in context about the one who is going to come before Christ at his first coming. That's John the Baptist and that's who's here now. So that is being literally fulfilled in these in the verses following with, with John the Baptist and doing his baptisms and proclaiming the coming of Christ. Malachi is speaking of the same principle that happened in the Exodus will happen in the future. So Exodus, there was a messenger, an angel. Remember, angel and messenger are the same word. There was an angel or messenger that led the way for the Israelites at the Exodus who will also lead the way at the coming of the Lord. Now, we look at this now, post-first coming of Christ, and pre-second coming of Christ. And we, with hindsight, can see that Isaiah is referencing John the Baptist, that Malachi is referencing Elijah at the second coming, and we can look back on the Exodus. What is so important as we study the Bible is to not give the readers of the day the benefit of hindsight. And when Mark is telling his story, 
he is telling the story to people who have been waiting for this coming of God, this return of God, that God is going to come and do this new exodus. He's going to take his people again and he's going to lead them to Jerusalem and they're going to, he's going to rise up in Jerusalem and set up his kingdom. And that's what they're all waiting for. Now it's all well and good, us, standing here now, following the time of Christ, the book of Acts, the establishment of the church, the introduction to the church of Jews and then Samaritans and then Gentiles, and the, the foundation of the canon of Scripture and the, the ministry of the apostles and prophets being the foundation of the church. And we've got all of that, and we know that Christ is coming back and that Malachi is speaking of a future event. But they didn't know that. They didn't know that. They were simply waiting for God to come back. They were waiting for God to have his messenger to prepare the way to set up the kingdom. And that's what they were waiting for. So while when I explain to you these quotations from from Isaiah, from Malachi, and everything I said there was accurate. I was explaining it from the perspective of us, where we stand in history. For the people at the time, they were simply looking for God to return. That kind of distinction wouldn't have been clear to them initially, certainly not at the arrival of Christ. That's important. That's going to be very important to our study tonight. And then we have John the Baptist arriving and coming, and we talked about his ministry. And uh, the, the uh, heavens are torn open, which is a uh, preview of the tearing of the temple curtain that's going to come at the end of the book. We see the Spirit coming into him, which is a preview of the Spirit leaving him him breathing, spiriting out at his death on the cross. And everything here in the prologue is moving towards the cross and the, the, the paradoxes and the contrasts. And finally, the uh, prologue began uh, with the, well, the prologue ended, but the book begins with the introduction of Satan. And as I spoke to you a couple of weeks ago last time we did this, what happens is that in all the other gospel accounts that talk about the temptations of Christ in the wilderness, Matthew and Luke, in those gospels we get all sorts of details, but in Mark's gospel it's simply an introduction. Jesus goes into the wilderness, that same place where the messenger comes from and where the voice is, and he goes into the wilderness, and here in the wilderness is the beginning of the testing of Christ by Satan. And Satan is going to be a key character that's going to go right the way through this gospel and the testing will go right the way through to the cross. And so for Mark's gospel, the details aren't there because he's not saying the testing of Christ happened in the wilderness. He's saying the testing of Christ begins there and is going to go right the way through the gospel. And the one thing I didn't mention when we taught that, which um, I apologize for retrospectively, was I see a very strong parallel between Mark's gospel and the book of Job. In the book of Job, the book of Job begins with Satan coming in and testing Job. And at the end of the book of Job, we have the revelation of Leviathan. Then Leviathan, I believe, is a reference to Satan. And God is saying to Job, I have control of him. This one who has been there, this ferocious beast who's been, who, who, can, who can handle this ferocious beast, I have a hook through his nose. I am the one who can control him. I am the one who is sovereign. And in the same way, we have Satan at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, and we're going to see Satan going right the way through to the testing of Christ in Gethsemane and at the cross, and we're going to see the sovereignty of God even in the death of Christ. That while Satan would like to bring death, and why he would like to bring failing, that he failed in his mission, he didn't crush Jesus, and Satan is there beginning and end, very similar to how it is in the book of Job, where Job is crushed, and yet at the end he is found to, to be clean. Now, with all that said and done, and that's very important, 
we now come to verse 14. We know in verse 14 we have our time. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. And the purpose of that timing is simply to tell us there's, there's plenty of other things that go on in the other Gospels that Mark doesn't tell us about here. He's telling us essentially the ministry that's going on in Galilee. If you remember back in verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan. And now we have this reference to Galilee again. We'll see again and again in Mark's Gospel, Mark is not chronological. He doesn't go through things in the sequence in which they happened. He's thematically bringing things together. And here he's talking, uh, this is a time that's about six months later. And it's talking about Jesus coming back to Galilee. And in the same way that, and, and the reason he does this is because in the same way that John, Jesus came from Nazareth and he has the ministry of John. And now Jesus comes back into Galilee and he has his ministry. And so with John being arrested and Jesus now preaching, we're seeing this transition from the ministry of the messenger to the ministry of the herald, of the herald to the ministry of the Messiah. That's the shift that's going on in those few verses. Now here comes the tricky bit. He comes into Galilee and he is proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, this is a central theme of John. We can't ignore this, we can't skim over it. The book began in verse 1, the beginning of the prologue, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So there's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and it's the Gospel, as I said at the time, the good news is what it literally means. The good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now we've had the prologue, now we're coming into the beginning of his ministry, and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is now the one who is proclaiming the good news. So we've gone from the good news about Jesus Christ to Jesus Christ proclaiming the good news. Now, that is obviously important. The prologue begins with it, the gospel proper begins with it. The good news is a central thing. Here's our problem. We know what the gospel is, don't we? And we use the word gospel as a Christianese kind of word. We, you know, we say, have you heard the gospel? You believe in the gospel, right? Let's go and share the gospel. We're, we're talking, we know what we're talking about. And predominantly what we're talking about when we use the word gospel is we're using it as shorthand for what the Apostle Paul spoke about in 1 Corinthians 15. That Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried according to the scriptures, and on the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. That's the Gospel, the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we take away from that, we don't have a Gospel. That's the Gospel. But remember what Gospel means. The Gospel means the good news, right? Now, for those who are dead in their sins, to hear that Jesus died in your place, and that he rose again from the dead and conquered death and conquered sin, that's really good news. Hence, the good news, the gospel. But the problem is, is that we use this term gospel as shorthand to mean the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? So when Jesus is saying, he's out there, he's proclaiming the gospel of God, he's not saying to them, you've got to believe in the death and burial, of, and, uh, the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because they say, well, who's Jesus Christ? That's me, but you're still alive. So what I'm saying is, the good news for them is different from the good news for us. Now, a lot of people, that's really radical, but it really shouldn't be. The fact that Adam and Eve, who brought sin into the world, could be saved from their sin by faith, that Moses could be saved from sin by faith, that David could be saved by sin from faith, they're not believing in the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ because they didn't know about that. They didn't even know it was going to come. The fact that Messiah would die in the place of his people for their sins wasn't something that came about for centuries after Adam and Eve and even Moses and even David. 
And so revelation was progressive through the Old Testament. They received a bit more information, they received a bit more information, they received a bit more information. But at any point in history, a person was saved by faith and not by works. And with Abraham, we're told specifically that Abraham believed the promises of God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he was saved because of his faith. What did he have faith in? In the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ? No, he had no concept of that. But he believed in the promises of God. But it was faith. But the content of the faith was different. So my question here, and I always try and attack the text with the sort of questions that I want to have answered, is what was Jesus proclaiming? Because what he was proclaiming was good news. It was a gospel, it was good news. But it certainly wasn't that he was going to, that, that he had died and was buried and resurrected, because he hadn't been. And I don't think it was even that he was going to die and be buried and resurrected, because Mark spins that for us as a shock, as a twist. For here they are, they finally, halfway through the gospel, figure out who Jesus is. <gasps> this is the powerful one. This is the Son of God. And Jesus says, absolutely right. Now you need to know I'm going to go and die. And that was the shocker for them. They finally work out this is Messiah. We now know what's going to happen. The Messiah is going to set up the kingdom. The Messiah is going to bring his rule and his reign. This is the second exodus. This is what we've been waiting for. And Jesus says, well, you're only half right. Actually, I'm going to go and die. And they fought him on it. They couldn't accept it. And so chapter after chapter in the second half of Mark, we're going to see him rebuking them, confronting them, just continually teaching them and saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Three separate times he tells them. And finally, he, he, tells, uh, he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And there is Satan again. You see, the testing didn't stop in the wilderness, did it? Peter's saying, you don't need to die. Get behind me, Satan. Another test. You know, we know that, that in the wilderness, Satan was tempting Jesus not to go to the cross. In Matthew and Luke, it happens in the wilderness. In Mark, he saves it for later on. Now, what is it then that Jesus is proclaiming? He's proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God. That's the good news that comes from God, and it's the good news that is about God. It's God's good news that he is proclaiming. And what is it that he says? Well, fortunately, in verse 15, we're told, saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay, well... Here are the details, and again, we've got to put aside our Christianese, we've got to put aside our current understanding to understand how they would have heard this. Firstly, he says the time is fulfilled. The concept of the time, the specific point in history, God sovereignly stepping into human history and, and, and saying, this is it, now, now's the time. You know, we, we were talking this morning about praying to God for deliverance and crying out to God. God has his times. God does things as he sees fit. Now's the time. And Jesus comes and he says, okay guys, this is it. Now's the time. Now is the time for the good news. This is the good news, folks. It's now. Now's the time. Imagine that you have some small children. You have young children. And those young children are, are told at the beginning of the school semester, maybe sort of January kind of time, they go to school and you're like, if you work hard this semester, kids, then when school finishes, when we hit summer, we're all going to go to Disney. We're going to go to Disneyland, right? And it motivates them and they get excited and they get excited and the months go by and the months go by and the months go by and they hit the summer and they say, when are we going to go? When are we going to go? When's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? And one day you wake them up and you say, kids, now's the time. Good news. Good news, folks. Now's the time. Today's the day that we're going to go to Disneyland. Right? There's this sense in which there's been anticipation and now is the time. 
Well, what is it the time for? Well, he says the time is fulfilled, it's come to fruition, it's, it, it, it's come to the point where it will see its fulfillment, and, here we go, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, let's be absolutely clear about this. There have been entire books written for centuries, multiple books written about the Kingdom of God and what does it mean and, and what have you. And I really don't go into this heavy kind of theology of trying to, you know, here, look, look at this here and let's look at this, let's try and work it out. You guys know me, I'm all about progression. I'm all about reading this through the scriptures and seeing it progressively unfold, okay? Now, we will get halfway through Mark's Gospel and Jesus will be telling us parables about the Kingdom of God. And they will be very different than what we might expect. That's part of the twist in Mark's Gospel. He will tell them the Kingdom of God is like this, and the Kingdom of God is like that. But right now, he doesn't tell them what the Kingdom of God is like. Now, I don't want to preempt these sermons, but of course in six months time when we probably get there, you'll have forgotten this maybe, or need a reminder by then, so I'm not hopefully spoiling things too much. But when he says to them, the Kingdom of God is like this, the Kingdom of God is like that, and these parables that he's teaching, He's telling them what the Kingdom of God is like because the things he's telling them about the Kingdom are not things that they knew about the Kingdom of God from reading the Old Testament. It's new things, it's different things. The nature of the Kingdom of God has changed and when we get there we'll see why. But right now He's telling them that the Kingdom of God is at hand. There's no furs of explanation, there's nothing else that's needed to be said. They know what the Kingdom of God is. And it's not as if this is an accident for Mark. It's not like Mark's trying to, is, is confused about what he's saying here, because he set up his prologue to take us back to the book of Isaiah and to show us and to say, look, there's this new exodus. The messenger is going beforehand. He's proclaiming, prepare the way of Yahweh. Yahweh is coming. It's happening. This is it. God is coming. God's kingdom. And one of the central themes of the entire Old Testament is the coming of God to his land to rule and reign in Zion, in Jerusalem, to rule and reign and to set up his kingdom on earth. Now, I am fully aware that there are many, many theologians today who do not like the concept of a physical kingdom on earth. And therefore, it is spiritualized by them. And it's just the kingdom of God is in our hearts. And they can easily find passages about the kingdom of God being very different in the New Testament. And we'll deal with those when we come to them in the second half of Mark's Gospel. But there are also theologians today who don't like the idea of a physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they spiritualize that away as well. On what basis? The concept of Jesus the Messiah coming to earth and ruling and reigning and having his kingdom on earth is one of the most central themes, if not the most central theme, of the entire Old Testament prophets. They all, this is what they do. They come and they say, oh Israel, you've sinned, and Israel, you've backslidden, and Israel, you're going to be punished, and Israel, you're going to be judged. But I'm going to remember my covenants, and I'm going to come back and establish the land, and there'll be peace, and there'll be prosperity, and I will rule, and I will reign. That paraphrase is pretty much every single prophet. And so it is that when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, what he's saying to them, if something is at hand, I'm not holding this pen. Well, I am now, but I wasn't. There's, the, there's a pen in front of me. I'm not holding it. But it's at hand. It's within reach. It's there. So Jesus is coming and saying, to paraphrase, He's saying, look, 
you've been waiting all this time, all these prophets, all this prophecy, and now, now is what you've been waiting for. Now is the time and the kingdom of God that you have waited for is at hand. It's available to you. And in response to that, what are you going to do? Well, in response to that, you're going to repent and you're going to believe what? The gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is the good news of what he's saying. In other words, it's essentially repetitive. He's saying, you're going to believe what I'm telling you. So for you, at this point, what do they have to put their faith in? They've got to put their faith in the fact that he is the one who has come to establish the kingdom of God. That's what they're putting their faith in. And there is a repentance that needs to happen. If they are not following God, if they're not concerned about the things of God, they need to turn to God because now is the time when the kingdom is being established. John is there telling them to repent because he's preparing the way for Yahweh. He's preparing the way for God. But here's the thing. Jesus is God. So they really need to repent now. Because the king, John is saying the kingdom's coming. Jesus is saying it's right now. It's here. It's at hand. It's available to you. So you need to repent and you need to believe that it's available to you. Now, there are a couple of possibilities here. And we will discuss them briefly, but we will not conclude. And why, why will we not conclude? Because we've just started Mark's Gospel. Let's gather a bit more evidence first, okay? But here's the two possibilities that we have. Possibility number one is that Jesus is saying the physical kingdom, me ruling and reigning here in Jerusalem, is available to you now. You can have it. All of the promises of the second coming, the establishment of the kingdom, it's yours. It's all yours now. You just got to repent and believe. And they rejected him, and so the offer was rescinded, and the nature of the kingdom then changed. Because they rejected the physical kingdom that was offered to them. That is the traditional view of dispensationalism. And if anyone were to say, well, so what, you know, what if they did take up the offer? Well, God knew that they wouldn't take up the offer. God is sovereign. He knows the hearts of man. He has his, his plans and, his, and what have you. But it was, in as much as it could be, it was a legitimate offer that they turned down. The other possibility is simply that what Jesus is saying is, you've been waiting for the Messiah to come and establish the kingdom, and I am the Messiah, and I'm going to establish my kingdom. And in that sense, the offer is being made, but not of a literal physical kingdom, but he's saying, in the same way, and this is the whole paradox of Mark's Gospel, in, in Exodus... There was the exodus and the messenger led the way and they, they went out of the land to the place that God had prepared for them. And at the time of Malachi, Elijah will come. Um, the, the time that Malachi speaks of in the future, Elijah will come and prepare the way and the Messiah will come and he will establish his kingdom and God will return. And here in the middle, there is the coming of the Messiah to establish his reign. That Mark is... Is we're seeing already he's amalgamating these concepts. And, and rather than, than saying, you know, like we like to do and be precise, well, this happened at the Exodus, this happens at the second coming, this happens in the middle. Mark is more bothered about the fact that this is the person of all of history. This is the one who comes and establishes his kingdom. And that may well be what Mark says. But we will look at that in more detail as we come. But here's the important part. This is, what, this is what we do know, okay? Those people hearing the message, all they are hearing is physical kingdom. That's all they're hearing. It is not because they are bad theologians. It's in fact because they're good theologians. All they know about the kingdom is what the prophets have told them 
And Jesus, who is clearly a prophet of some sort in their eyes, who's speaking on behalf of God, is telling them that this kingdom, without any additional qualifications or explanations, that this kingdom is available to them. That he's come and he's going to establish his kingdom and all he's going to do is repent and believe. They are expecting the kingdom to be set up on earth. That's what they're expecting. And that is what they're being led to believe. Now, whatever view we take on the kingdom of God, whatever view we take on God's plan and how God, what, what God was trying to communicate and how it worked out, it is very clear that this is what those people understood and it's very clear that this is something that they were led to believe. And so it's always going to be my kind of inkling that there was an offer of a physical kingdom because otherwise God's offering them something that he has no intention of giving them. But it may be that Mark, as he kind of goes through, he'll explain it slightly differently. So we'll see as we go through. But this is, this is how they would have seen the kingdom. Now, just in, in regards to this, I want us to flick back to Isaiah and just see how this is all rooted in the Old Testament. We... Um, we saw in chapter 40 of Isaiah, this is what Mark has quoted from, this is the foundation of this gospel. Let's, let's, let's turn there. I do feel that I want to teach Isaiah desperately. I just, I feel I want to teach Isaiah and then come back and do Mark. I just, Isaiah, of all the Old Testament, it is perhaps the most central book. It, it's just so central to the Jewish faith and to understand it and to see how Christ fulfills scripture. We just need to understand Isaiah. And I, I, I I'm really, I struggle with it because you know what? I really feel I don't, I'm not good enough yet in my studies to be able to do justice to Isaiah. But until I do Isaiah, I don't feel I'm able to do justice to the New Testament. I'm in this kind of catch-22 situation. I want my, I want my Hebrew to be top-notch, and I want my, my Septuagint studies, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, you know, from Hebrew to Greek, I want that to be top-notch, so I can really wrestle with Isaiah, understand Isaiah in context, because there's so much richness here. Look, you should be with me now in chapter 40. Let's look at chapter 40. Chapter 40 is a whole new section of Isaiah, everybody agrees on, on that. And he, and he starts in chapter 40 and he says, Comfort, comfort my people, says, um, uh, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, and that she see, receive from the Lord's hand double for her sins. So the context of chapter 40 is this time of restoration. She's been punished for her sins, she's received plenty for her sins, she's been punished double for her sins, and now is the time where God comes and comforts the broken child, where God comes and comforts Jerusalem. And he, he speaks tenderly and he cries. And, and the warfare and the suffering and the persecution, it's over, it's done. This is a time when Israel is comforted that that whole period is over. And a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And that's the verse that we saw quoted regarding John the Baptist, okay? And so, this is the paradox of Isaiah and so much of the Old Testament. In that Isaiah is saying, look, your warfare, your suffering, it's over, right? It's all over. That second coming and establishing of the kingdom. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight of the desert a highway for our God. That's first coming. What's wrong with Isaiah? Is he schizophrenic? Is he getting confused? What's the deal here? Well, here's the deal. The prophets are dealing with things thematically. Okay? So, Isaiah is talking about peace and comfort to Israel. We know, because we've done these studies in the evenings, that when, when, when Israel has the, the second coming and the establishment of the kingdom and what have you, that the, sec, the, new, the new covenant is going to be established for that people. And Jeremiah prophesied the new covenant that God would make with Israel and how he put his spirit in all of them and they would all be saved. And we live in this weird time 
where the new covenant has been established but it hasn't been fulfilled because the new covenant was something that was promised to Israel and Israel has not received that promise yet they haven't repented they haven't been saved they haven't received the Spirit but what was promised to them aside from the land and the kingdom physically the promise of the Spirit of God within them the promise of salvation and accompanying that salvation the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit to all who believe that has come about so when when Isaiah is saying in general terms the foundation the prologue if you like of this section of Isaiah he's saying Israel be comforted now is the time for peace now is good this is this is the good stuff right and then it talks about the voice crying in the wilderness referencing John the Baptist now that will happen before the second coming as well with Elijah but here clearly it's talking of the first coming but the first coming is the foundation it's the establishing of the new covenant that makes the coming of the kingdom eventually possible and so this would constantly happen with the prophets they would be jumping from first coming to second coming to first coming to second coming and to them they're talking about the same thing they didn't see the difference and that's because Isaiah's theme is the Messiah it's the servant of God it's the son of God coming and there's a bit about his first coming and a bit about his second coming so when he's saying this in this context he says every valley shall be lifted up every mountain and hill will be made low the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken and certainly when John quotes this uh, reference to John the Baptist and, and the, the him coming in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord the glory of God being revealed that glory is seen in John's eyes at the cross ultimately the comforting of Israel the Lord coming the establishing of the kingdom ultimately that's going to happen when Jesus returns not in human flesh but in glory he doesn't come as a babe in the incarnation but he returns in his resurrected body glorified to bring judgment not to Israel they will have been judged but to the rest of the world and a voice says verse 6 cry and I said what shall I cry all flesh is grass and its beauty is like the flower of the field the grass withers the flower fades when the breath of the Lord Spirit of the Lord blows upon it surely the people are grass the grass withers the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever anyone who says God won't do what he's gonna do it's, he said it's going to happen it's going to happen I mean that's got to be relevant for what we're studying tonight the kingdom of God the physical kingdom but listen to this verse 9 get up get you up to a high mountain O Zion herald of good news now it's very hard for us to understand this we talked this morning a little bit about cognates no I know a verb knowledge a noun they obviously come from the same root and they're talking about the same kind of thing right a good news is a thing it's a noun right there's not in English a verb that is good newsing we don't have that do we but they do in Greek and literally here in in the uh, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew here it uses the same word um, or the same cognate as we have when it talks about good news and it says literally get up get you up to a high mountain O Zion O good newsing one the one bringing good news the, the good newsing one so it's kind of like a, a verbal participle kind of form but it's talking about good news now this is this is relevant Mark has established in his foundation this is the gospel this is the good news right chapter 1 verse 1 he's now in chapter 15 saying this is good news this is the gospel and then he repeats you've got to repent and believe the gospel the good news 
Okay? So it's clearly a theme here. When he starts his prologue, the foundation is going to Isaiah and seeing that there is a messenger, a herald, a proclaimer, who is proclaiming, prepare the way of the Lord. That's Isaiah 40, verse 3. So it doesn't seem to me, you know, again, we always say this, don't we? When somebody quotes the Old Testament, you don't want to look at that one verse. You want to look at the surrounding context. He's pointing you to that whole passage. Well, it's no coincidence he's pointed us to Isaiah 40. And in Isaiah 40, there are a couple of references here to good newsing, proclaiming good news. So, get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, uh, herald of good news. Repeat it. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Now, this is, this is pretty cool, by the way. The multiple references to good news gospel in Mark's gospel has to be linked to the multiple references to good news in Isaiah 40. He's already pointed us to Isaiah 40 at the beginning of the, of the gospel. That link is very, very clear, right? In the context of Isaiah 40, there is good news. You go and you proclaim the good news. What's the good news? Behold, God! This is the whole theme. Prepare the way. God's coming. So what Jesus is saying here, when he's saying in Mark's Gospel, he's saying, now is the time, now is the kingdom, the way is here, the way is prepared, it's done, it's ready, here it is, believe this good news, they're in Isaiah 40. They're thinking Isaiah 40. And Isaiah 40 is talking about, behold God. And then read on in Isaiah 40, verse 10. Behold, the Lord God, that's the Lord Yahweh, comes with might. That's, that's Mark's theme, isn't it? The mighty God, the Son of God. He comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward with him and he will recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. And so on it goes. This is the good news. The good news is that God has arrived. Now I know that John's Gospel is the Gospel that proclaims the deity of Christ most clearly, but it's here in Mark's Gospel as well. That Jesus is basically saying there is good news, there's good news of God, the Gospel of God. It's the good news concerning God. What's the good news concerning God? In the context of Isaiah 40, the good news is, behold, God! Jesus is declaring himself to be God here. Now, also, what is interesting is this section of Isaiah develops the theme of the servant of God, which we'll return to again and again in Mark's Gospel. We'll be spending a lot of time in Isaiah as we go through it. But if you want to flick ahead to chapter 52. Isaiah 52 is very similar to chapter 40. Do you remember how chapter 40 started? Comfort, comfort, that repetition, yes? 52, awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised, the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. That is an exact parallel to what we saw in chapter 40. It begins with the, 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 the double repetition. So, I'll just read that as well again. Just stay in chapter 52. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Awake, awake, O Zion, O Jerusalem. It's all parallel. It's this comforting. The war is over. The struggle's done. It's that kind of thing. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing. You should be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down into Egypt. And there's the parallels with the Exodus again. And on it goes. And then in verse 7, this is where we want to pick up. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. 
Now, I referenced the beginning of this chapter to show you the de deliberate parallels with chapter 40. Now, as we go a few verses in, we have another direct parallel with chapter 40. We have the referencing to good news again. Who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness. You see, that good news is repeated twice in Isaiah 52, just as it is repeated twice in Isaiah 40. Who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. What did chapter 40 say? It said, Behold your God, and now your God reigns. You see all these parallels linking these two chapters together. Your God reigns, and this is the voice of the watchman. Together they sing for joy, and they break into singing, and they, they, and they go on. Now, look what happens then. This is the establishment of God. His God has come. Behold your God. God reigns, and all of this. And then in verse 13... Behold, my servant shall act wisely. And we begin the passage that is the most well-known passage in Isaiah in all of Christendom. The passage of the servant who suffers. The servant who dies. The servant who dies in the place of others. Surely has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now can you see what Mark is doing here? Isaiah 40 is about good news being proclaimed because behold God and then we come a little bit later to good news being proclaimed and then the death of the servant of God the suffering of the servant of God that directly parallels Mark's gospel there is the proclamation behold God the kingdom is at hand. And then later on in Mark's Gospel, there's going to be the proclamation of good news again, but it's going to be slightly different. And it's going to lead to the suffering servant. So Mark is very much following a blueprint of Isaiah here. So when Jesus... And let's turn back to, uh, to, Mark's, uh, to Mark's Gospel. When Jesus is proclaiming here, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. I just want to, let's summarize my conclusions here. First of all, Jesus is saying, this is the point in history that you've been waiting for. It's a specific and definitive moment. It is the fulfillment of everything that they've waited for. He is paralleling it with Isaiah's um, prophecies, and he's already pointed them to that, and he's saying, this kingdom of God is here. He's showing them chapter 40. Chapter 40 says, prepare the way, God is coming, behold God. God. This is good news. God is here. And Jesus is here and he is God. And the good news is, is that God is here. And the good news is that God is here to establish his kingdom. And all you've got to do, Israel, to be part of that kingdom is you've got to repent and you've got to believe. But they didn't. And yet, the kingdom is established and the servant suffers, which parallels what happens in Isaiah. And we'll come back to that. But you see, what happens is that Israel are waiting for a new exodus. They're waiting for God to come and free them and to establish his kingdom. And that's exactly what's going to happen, but not as they expect. But, one last thing. Remember what Isaiah said. He said, my words will not pass away. Grass will fade, come and go. People are like grass, they come and go. And the Jews were there and they rejected Christ and the kingdom physically wasn't established and there is a kingdom that has been established in a different sense. But those people will not change the word of God. The people who didn't repent, the people who didn't believe, they don't change the word of God. And Jesus will return and he will establish his kingdom. And there will be a physical kingdom that we in resurrected bodies will enjoy with Jesus ruling and reigning on earth. Why? Because God's word is assured. 
It doesn't fade. It isn't deceitful. He isn't promising one thing and giving us another. But it is just the very nature of God that when the offer is there and the rejection comes, that God still pours out his blessings. When the Jews wouldn't receive the kingdom that was offered, he opens up the blessings of a new covenant to another people. Because that is the nature of God. To be good, to be merciful, to be kind. And Paul tells us, what about those Jews who've rejected him? He says, one day that blindness will be lifted. And one day all Israel will be saved. And then the kingdom will come and it will be established, and those things will be fulfilled. But what Mark is going to do as we go through this journey, and I'm well aware that I'm not going to talk about the first disciples now, that we're not going to get that far, but one thing that Mark is going to show us is, is he's going to show us how Isaiah and his prophecies of the coming of God are fulfilled in Christ, and then just like Isaiah, the thing that confused them all so much about Isaiah, here's God, here's his glory, he's going to come and he's going to establish, and here's his servant, and his servant suffers and dies. And that same paradox and that same twist is what Mark is going to guide us through in his gospel. In fact, the more I look at it, the more I see Mark's gospel as being, in a sense, uh, an exposition of Isaiah, an explaining of the problems of Isaiah. And he will show us and take us through that. So when Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand, it was available to them. They had to repent and believe in that good news, the good news of beholding God and seeing him there. And they may not have seen him, but we can. Jesus is God. And we rejoice in that good news. And now that he has come, and that he has died and that he has been buried and resurrected, that is the good news that we proclaim. We can proclaim not just Isaiah 40, behold our God, we can proclaim Isaiah 52, that he bore our sins. And we can proclaim the resurrection of Christ as well. That is the good news that we have to share. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this gospel of Mark's. As we keep digging away, Lord, at it, I pray that you would give ever more riches to us. May we come to understand your word better, the harmony of old and new, the, the revelation of your word in its context. And in doing so, may we come to know you better and may our faith be established and grounded. that we might know that you are God, that you are sovereign, and that our trust in, might be fully in you, and our hearts might be fully yours. Amen.